gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the midwest monsters podcast i'm one of your hosts grizzly abner and i'm joined by professor wagstaff venomous Vinny, hot toddy thanks for joining us again friends we have got another installment of the monster mash you know the format we each pick a movie and force the other people to watch it along with us so that we can <laughs> talk about it it gets us out of genre or not genre but gets us out of uh franchise or directors or uh, any specific theme so we can just pick stuff that wouldn't normally come up and so i am grizzly Adner, and i chose a little film called my name is bruce what about you professor i chose the autopsy of jane doe <laughs> very nice i chose the hunchback of notre dame 1939 Cool. And I chose Deadly Friend. Deadly Friend. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, we have chosen to go in order of silliest to seriest. Serious is... Serious to word? Seriousness. The English language is always evolving. Serious. Okay. So, that means we begin with my choice. My name is Bruce. Toddy hit us with the dates and details. My name is Bruce, 2007, starring Bruce Campbell, Ted Raimi, Danny Hicks, directed by Bruce Campbell, and written by Mark Varheden. Okay. Uh, I own this movie. I've seen it several times. I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, Around the table, everybody's first impression. Uh, This was my second viewing. Um, this is my favorite Bruce Campbell outside of Ash, Evil Dead, role. Nice. nice. I surprisingly had never seen this before. I watched it for the first time for the podcast. Is that all we have to say? For now. Uh, okay. Uh, I've, I've owned this movie since it came out. I've never watched it till now. And I watched it for this podcast. Cool. Here okay. we are. <laughs> and what a lovely <laughs> evening it is. So, the uh, the premise is, um, Bruce Campbell is playing Bruce Campbell, and uh, there's a little town that is overrun with an ancient Chinese uh, ghost or demon, whatever you will. And so, uh, this kid that lives in the town is a huge fan of Bruce Campbell, and uh, says, Bruce can certainly help us, uh, because he just loves all of his work. And so, they kidnap Bruce, bring him to town... And uh, he thinks it's a movie that they're shooting. And then he finds out it's really a monster they want him to fight. And he says, you don't understand. My name is Bruce. I'm not Ash Williams. Like, uh, I, I'm not that guy. I'm an actor. And so that's the loose setup of the, the film here. Yes, there is uh, certainly some fallout from uh, his reactions to being faced with the uh, a real problem. Yeah. Uh, thoughts? Other plot points you guys want to bring up? <clears throat> Just in the movie in general, or? 
we kind of hit a, a dead <laughs> stop there on the plot line. Um, basically, I think that it's surprising with Bruce Campbell directing this how well he handles catering to all of his strengths. So in this little town of Goldlick, we have uh, Gwandi, who is unearthed, and which, might I add, works particularly well because they don't try and do some big, ridiculous monster. They basically have... Scooby-Doo villain? Yeah, uh, this ancient figure without a bunch of elaborate effects to him, and they just have the the screen around him vibrating with glowing eyes. And it's Mm -hmm. particularly effective in the sense that it's fun. It's not uh, distracting where you're laughing at how bad it looks like you do frequently with Bruce Campbell movies. Um, And so it really is the perfect showcasing vehicle for Campbell. It's got all of his strengths that we love watching him in movies for without it ever feeling taxing in the slightest the movie moves very swiftly and in fairness to our setup for it there's really not much to the plot we have him kidnapped and brought there he realizes after thinking that it's for a movie that this is a real creature he flees and it leaves him in shame yeah and he deals with that from there and so basically, not only does this play to all of his strengths, but it also makes fun of every single trope about right. Bruce Campbell. Like, There's zero taking himself seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It makes fun. I mean, he's like, he pours his dog some liquor and then drinks liquor out of the dog bowl. <laughs> like he, uh, he's an asshole to everybody he encounters. So it's, it's pretty funny. Um, also, so basically the, this demon is summoned because the shitty goth kids, one of which is our protagonist that kidnaps Bruce, uh, they go to the Chinese graveyard and just start uh, kicking over tombstones because they're just shitty kids. Yeah. And uh, in doing so, this little town was a mining town and a bunch of Chinese folks who were miners died in a mining explosion and Guandi was their kind of patron saint, if you will, of the Chinese people and bean curd. He loves Chinese bean curd, uh, which will come up as a joke it later. Will come in handy. Yes. Guandi is his name. <laughs> one you, one me, Guandi. It's got its own song, which I know is a big hit for Toddy. We're staring at a couple <laughs> of blank faces right now. Yeah. So, I, I was just going to say, I, I watched this movie. I felt like the villain, the the made-for-TV Scooby-Doo movies had better better villains. And at the end of the movie, I was kind of angry at this movie, actually. I was like, Bruce Campbell deserves better. And then it comes up on the screen directed, directed by it. Bruce Campbell. And then I just, I have no words after that. I was Deal with it. It was Turd City. Ooh, shot I, uh, I, I put the DVD in the pile of Seld Dave's. Good. Give it to someone who enjoys it with taste. I watched it for the first time. I liked it well enough, um, even complete with yellow face from Ted Raimi. <laughs> Ted Raimi, uh, an awful, awful stereotype. And here, here's here's where I have my problem with this movie. Had I seen this movie when it came down came out, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. But I feel like everything that is the positives of this movie was perfected in Ash versus Evil Dead. But, yeah, but this was eight years before. That's that. what I'm saying. Had I seen it when it came yeah. out, 
I probably would view it differently than I view it now. Yeah. But because I was exposed to Ash versus Evil Dead before my name was Bruce, this just, to me, doesn't hold a candle to it. Had I seen it in chronological order, might have a different opinion. But I don't know that I'll ever watch it again, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. We agree hmm. on something? We do. Hmm. Wow. The, the table drifts in half. <laughs> Boy. Well, uh, you want to tell us the... Uh, I didn't hate it. The, the time it took place? 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're fishing for there. I don't know. Timeline. Timeline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> if you pay close attention... <laughs> This is actually my name is Bruce. I will Four. say I will say <laughs> this is I might, versus evil. Dead I probably agree six. with Vinny on if I watched it when it first came out, I might have felt differently. Too. I think that makes all the difference. The fact that I hadn't seen it before I saw Ash versus Evil Dead, and I think I particularly enjoyed it because I saw it when it did come out, and, and I can I, see that. I've been anticipating it. I can see that. I still love Bruce Campbell. Every now and then, somebody's in a shitty movie. I will say though, even withstanding the show, this is still good Bruce Campbell, like. This possesses what you enjoy in the Evil Dead movies and anything else you've seen, even. So I really don't think it's it's a far leap in quality. It's like if well, you watched like, Briscoe County Jr. or Jack of All Trades yeah. or uh, take your pick of any of his movies that are subpar. I mean, <clears throat> this is as good as any of it. Right. I'm not defending it as Gone with the Wind, but it's, <laughs> it's Bruce Campbell. It delivers yeah. on you know what you tune in for, I think. All right, let's get so, to the finale. Uh, just a couple, this is too electric. A couple things I want to bring up here. <laughs> electric dynamite. Yeah. Um, I, I just love some of his asshole moves. Like he's such an asshole to everybody in the movie. One of my favorites is a uh, this, this guy in a wheelchair <laughs> wants his autograph. He says, "Come on, don't you have anything newer?" And Bruce Campbell goes, "You a fan of rawhide?" Rawhide. And he goes, "We well, got to keep them doggies rolling." Yeah. <laughs> and he kicks the guy in the wheelchair down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. Yes, it's so bad. Lots of cameos in this movie. Todd, surely you noticed all the cameos. I did, and don't call me Shirley. You <laughs> <laughs> might got a list of the cameos. Everybody from all the Evil Dead movies. I know that his ex-wife is Ellen. Was it Sandwise from the original Evil Dead that he's calling? Was it, his was it Cheryl? I think her name might have been the same thing in the movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've got Ted Raimi and twenty three roles. Ted Raimi playing twenty three <laughs> roles. You've got uh, the who's the redneck guy in Danny the Hicks. too. Yeah, Danny Hicks is in it. Uh, you've got both the blacksmith and the uh, another one of the guys from at, or uh, from Army of Darkness, mm-hmm. and they are a gay couple. Todd, which what I thought thought would have hit for you. It couldn't save this film. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's, uh, that's about all I got. I can't carry this one. You want to go into the, the Beano or the, the, <laughs> the distraction with the, the cutout? And oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Bruce finally uh, nuts up, and he decides he's going to help because he really likes the kid. Moreover, he likes the kid's mom, um, who I looked up just because curious, never seen her in anything else. She's my age. She's 36, and she's got like an 18-year-old kid in the movie. Yeah. yeah. But even when this movie was made, what year was this? Did what year just come out? 2007. Okay, so she would have been 25 <laughs> with a 16-year-old kid. So, nine-year-old well, mother. They start young and gold lick. That's right. That's right. Um, 
Vinny so, has been asleep for the last three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so the way they, they get Wandy to uh, come after him is they've got a Bruce uh, a cutout of Bruce Campbell from trying to sell his book, How to Make Love the Bruce Campbell Way. And uh, what other part were you bringing up there, Professor? With the bean curd. Oh, yeah. The distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They love, uh, he loves his bean. They're throwing the bean curd, and he has to catch it because he doesn't want it to go to waste. <laughs> Guys, this is comic gold. I don't understand why you can't. Uh... It's like doing stand-up for nine-year-olds. It's just <laughs> painful. It hurts. Your parents are going to love it. You like what you like, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I highly recommend My Name is Bruce well, to anyone who cares. And in closing, the twists are upon twists are upon twists. Oh, We've yeah. been watching a movie. There you go. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> So I recommend this film. Professor, do you recommend this film? Uh, for serious Bruce Campbell fans, yes. Outside of that, no. I a agree little, with that. For little soft ass crybabies. No. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what I agree with that at hundred percent. If you're yeah. a diehard Bruce Campbell fan, you if you're need looking to see for it. laughs and fun with Bruce Campbell, this is great. If you're looking for I say if you're looking for Bruce Campbell, watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> An actual horror movie or a horror comedy, this'll leave you a little flat. But for fans of him, I think it's uh most will be pleased with it. All right. Toddy, you did no closing remarks? I'm like, I, I love Bruce Campbell. Not in this. <laughs> Boy. I'd rather watch him in Congo than this movie. <laughs> Ooh, wow. <laughs> I agree. That's I a big one. That's a big one. Okay. Said no one. <laughs> Moving right along to uh, another cinematic masterpiece for the evening. Deadly Friend. <laughs> So, arguably one of Wes Craven's best films. <laughs> <laughs> What's the list? <laughs> it's between this and... This is Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Sorry, you're said. being serious. I would try to be real. <laughs> I thought you were screwing with us at first. Wes Craven's best film ever. <laughs> 1986's <laughs> Deadly Friend. Oh, shit. Uh, so, most people probably don't even know that this is Wes Craven. This episode is going to end in a fist fight. Right? Um... <laughs> That's me kidding. <laughs> so, uh, Wes Craven's Deadly Friend starring uh, Christy Swanson in her first film role. And uh, the always lovely Anne Ramsey. Who we all know. <laughs> yes. I was Ramsey's mama. <laughs> um, it's wet, ain't it? <laughs> so I, I probably haven't seen this movie since it first came out, but uh, I guess quick synopsis is uh, a nerdy kid invents Johnny Five. Johnny Five gets uh, its head blown off from Anne Ramsey, the crazy, uh, paranoid, secluded neighbor. Uh, he loves his uh, abusive, uh, she's abused by her father, neighbor, who also dies. He puts the young hottie, uh, Johnny Five sticks it, his brain inside her, and we get deadly friend. Which doesn't really explain why she has robotic strength, but... Um, <laughs> Kind of a, a young adult version of uh, of Frankenstein, uh, Deadly Friend. I would say this is a young adult reanimator. I can see that a little bit. I'm quitting this show. <laughs> <laughs> I can never top that. <laughs> well, our uh, initial thought, uh, boy, I'm going to tell you, like ten to fifteen minutes in, Carrie and I were like, "What in the hell did Todd make us watch this time?" And by the end, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, pretty decent little film. Pretty decent little film. Enjoyed it. Yeah, it's... It depends on kind of the... What 
what angle you're coming from. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I would like for you to expound on. If you're, yeah, if, you're good if you're coming into this as oh Wes, Wes Craven directed exactly. this movie, you're so, probably going to be disappointed. Here's from the two sides of that. If we're talking about Wes Craven, this is one of his weaker films. If you're looking for entertaining '80s fare, this hits all kinds of marks for that. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that's kind of where I say. I say it. if you're looking for a troll too. Oh, I wouldn't. Say that's this oh, movie. Oh boy. You try oh. to get this table flipped. <laughs> I'm hey. sorry. This movie was doo doo. Like it was funny, but it was funny because it was fucking awful. <laughs> How are we sugarcoating this? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's that bad. I liked it. I thought it was funny though. Like it's it, so it probably it was hilarious to me. So at the time, I don't think it was intended to be campy, but it's very campy and it can be a fun movie. One, yes, it's fun. Yeah, it Here's, is fun. The problem with it is, is that this was Craven trying to get into the studio groove, and so we lack a lot of the intelligence and grittiness that his films usually possess. This doesn't have. That's okay, but you got to think of it like if you pull back on it, and you could put this with Fright Night, for instance. That's a fun double feature. It's for starters, it's filmed on the same damn street. It's the I same house. So. I was I was trying to look that up, and I will say I have never seen more. IMD facts about a movie than Deadly Friend. Yeah, but it's it's the Warner Brothers backlot, and you have with the 80s and the kid who's trying to investigate and is kind of alienated with a heavier situation than a teenager should be dealing with. And so it fits into a lot of the tropes of, of how many movies from that decade that did that. And so there is some fun gore. It, it's... The thing that saves this film is it never takes itself too seriously. Yeah. I mean, clearly, when we're popping a head open with a basketball, oh, this is not a film way to that's steal the best scene from all of us. Well, I mean, even people who haven't seen this film, that's the one thing they know. Which, about which her her original death is actually in the trailer because that's not how. So what? I guess it's been a while since I watched this movie. So watching well. watching the movie. If it, it, it re- it's really two different movies in one, to where some some scenes don't quite go together and make sense. So looking into this, it's based on a book. The book is very much like a a younger version of Frankenstein. It's more about the love story, which is what Wes Craven wanted to film, and that's what they did film. So at the beginning of the movie, it feels like a young teen movie, and then Warner Brothers realized who's directing this. They're like it's. It's Wes Craven. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. So they insisted on adding all the gore scenes, making it more scary, the confusing ending. Like, all of that's from Warner Brothers. So originally, like, none of this was the intention of the movie Wes Craven was trying to make. But to me, it's a fun movie. Um, But it's definitely, I mean, it's not something that... Do you think this was a prequel to the TV show Small Wonders? It was a get sequel. out of my head. <laughs> I felt like this was a if Small Wonder fucked Johnny Five and had oh, a baby. That was a straight up refurbed Johnny Five, straight <laughs> up. Well, and I wondered since his name was BB, if he was a relative of BB Eight from the new Star Wars film. It's actually his. This is his, his grandfather. Uh, yes, let's pronounce it, baby. <laughs> the, the voice of the thing, like how how can you take it seriously when the voice is. Done. Sounds like one of the gremlins. I'm pretty sure it's the guy who did the voice for Roger Rabbit. It is. It's Charles yeah. Fletcher, actually. 
so Charles Fletcher was a Nightmare on Elm Street. I just don't see it. From the minute that robot rolled onto camera, I couldn't take this movie seriously. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Uh, like as The minute I laid eyes on that thing and I heard it making that noise, I was like, Okay, so this is this is just a romp. Like this isn't anything I'm supposed to look at as art. Uh, I remember your Vinny takes his robots seriously. Yeah, he does. They had the guy from Little House on the Prairie was the lead <laughs> the lead guy in the movie. Literally. Uh, the scene where they first show Christy Swanson, I'm like, oh, that's Christy Swanson. I was like, how old is she there? And why are her boobs so big? And then like a scene later, somebody's like, it just something about her boobs. I was like. Oh, so that was done purposely <laughs> to, to accentuate her bust. Um, the basketball head explosion. Like I say, I had fun with this movie, but I don't, not, I, I feel like we watched two different movies. Well, when I'm saying like this was fun. I don't think anybody here is exercising an academic angle on why this is a stellar film for people to be genuinely scared and ex- stimulated by. I liked how Christy Swanson, after she had the transplant, uh, somehow got Chris Rock's hands for the rest of the movie. <laughs> like it, it was, it was like I say, it was a lot of fun. So I think what you're but, saying, so so when this, when this movie film. came out, people did not receive it well. It was a flop. Weird, and it makes sense because if when this movie came out, it was it was meant to be serious. I can see why people hated it, but because of like the basketball death. Like, and, and the goofiness of this movie, I think people, it, it just became like a cult movie. It's very campy, and that's how people, if you don't take it more than it being campy, and I'm fine with hate that. this movie. If you, if you look at this movie as being serious, it's garbage. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Vinny, I know that you disliked it just because you got upset when the <laughs> robot crushed that dude's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, that's no laughing matter. I'm triggered. I, I, okay, if you guys really want to know, I was assaulted by a robot. When I was <laughs> now, what was the catchphrase you're supposed to say to get into the car? Pokey, wonky, wee. Pokey, wonky, yeah, wee. Well. So, Johnny... <laughs> Throwback, what folks. What we don't know is uh, Johnny Five was a bit of a pedophile. Oh, man. And, uh, There's Vinny, no turning back from this. Vanny was on the set of Short Circuit 2. <laughs> All right, uh, so, Johnny, you're five, your business. Um, so this had some of Craven's like signature stuff all over it, like that dream, that creepy dream she has about her dad mm-hmm. was Craven. The basement furnace. Well, yeah. So yeah, then later she turns her dad into Freddy Krueger with that basement <laughs> furnace, burns his face off. Right. Yep. I mean, it it had a lot of uh, Craven moments that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think the one thing that would have this uh, <laughs> film okay. the best would be a stronger enemy that the audience would get more invested in. Yeah. Because we have what feels like a very brief situation with the father who is responsible for the death of his own daughter. And then our other our other big showdown is with a neighbor who took a basketball. I mean, like if we would have built up something to to care more about in terms of um, our robot uh, helping come to the defense of the boy. I think that would have aided the film a lot Christy more. Swanson had no easy task being given right. this role either. And that's the thing. If she had somebody who was spicing it up as kind of the villain role in a, in a heightened 
situation, I think that that would have helped the film a lot. What if she would have been fighting vampires? And, like, slaying them? And slaying. What if, <laughs> what if uh, this was Bride of Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> no, I really do, like, I, I know you were busting my chops earlier, but I really do, I did get a little bit of a reanimator feel from this one. No, I mean, it's no, I got all the it. classic kind of structure of the mad scientist and things yep. getting out of control. And not wanting to acknowledge not, that things yeah, are out of control. Not recognize it and let go of it. Um, I, I just got to say, we laughed out loud when I think the cops were chasing her. Who did she get a hold of? And she went, baby. <laughs> and she threw. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> he like flew. Oh, yeah. In that moment, it was like that finally knew from... what movies were. <laughs> it was that creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> yes. Throw. Yes. Yep. <laughs> creature walks among us yep. or whatever. I turned the creature. I almost said, too, I thought it was the... For most... It looked like it was sledding. <laughs> for that, the fact that it was still early on when, when he's trying to convince... Uh, I think it's the friend is coming out of the house, but she just, like, swan dives in front of everybody out the window. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. There's some cool scenes, but... I do so like cheesy. Uh, a couple things here about the ending. Um, I did like her alternating consciousness uh, as she is being surrounded by the cops. Like it's clicking back and forth, which pretty poor continuity because she wasn't doing that throughout the whole movie. She was pretty much BB the whole time. But in these last moments, she's like, I'm myself. I'm the robot. I'm myself. I'm the robot. And it like showed her seeing things differently and thinking differently. But this is a total, total American Werewolf in London ending. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Total American, because he's like, no, 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 I can save her. And she's like, has these moments of consciousness? But then she's like, crazy robot, and they shoot her. Baby. <laughs> Man. <laughs> what a pile. <laughs> uh, all in all, I think if you're a fan of the genre, a fan of Wes Craven, fan of '80s stuff, give it a, give it a wing. I mean, yeah. it's it, I at the end of the day, I was not mad about it at all. Well, in fairness, Venomous Vinny picked a film from the arguably the greatest year in cinema and a celebrated <laughs> classic that we're getting ready to discuss. That's why this is beneath him. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that it's beneath me. I I, I just I felt I feel like you guys got something. Way different out of this movie than I did. Well, we're all about fucking film snobs, all right? I'm not saying I'm a film snob, but you guys... I think somewhere in there, you're elevating us way higher than we are. You're just real low. <laughs> you referred to it as a pile. I would say that's a little hard. But, no, it's pretty bad. But it's <laughs> bad in a good way to me. Well, You know what I mean? Like, I say watch this. If you want to have a good time and have some laughs, to me, that's why you watch this movie. I got no problem with that. Yeah. Todd, any final thoughts on Deadly Friend? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, well, if Here we, we are. Todd off a grinder for a minute, we can get to our next film. <laughs> nope, not happening. Evidently not. I was just trying to find a... I was hoping Vinny would sing the theme. Oh, yeah, that's right. It has its own song. BB. <laughs> that's a that's a very own Vinny. Oh, I just thought you would do some uh, Boggy Creek for us. So we got <laughs> two movies and two songs to go with them. I guess we'll get into yours now, Vinny. <laughs> Tall order, bud. Where's your song, buddy? 
<laughs> so, uh, leaping forward to the year 1939, we have The Hunchback of Notre Dame, starring Charles Lawton, Cedric Hardwick, Thomas Mitchell, and directed by William Durkerter. We have DJ. <laughs> there you go. And, of course, based on the book by Victor Hugo. So, like Jekyll and Hyde, uh, this, for me, I will watch any version of The Hunchback that has ever been made at least once. Uh, I don't know what it is about the story that resonates with me. It may be because I was introduced to it very young by my dad. Uh, but I've always just had a fascination with the story, and I love seeing the different makeups. I love seeing the different uh, portrayals of Quasimodo. Uh, do you guys want to give your initial thoughts? Or you want me to do a, a synopsis? Did, did you watch yeah. uh, The Quarterback of Notre Dame? Yes. <laughs> so this was my first time watching the film. Um you know, I tend to like a lot of older films, but I'll be real honest, it's hard to make myself watch a new older film that I'd never seen before. So like I sit down and I'm like, all right, here we go, black and white, time for a Charlie Chaplin movie, you know, and summoning the spirit of Brian Jackson. <laughs> summoning Brian Jackson. And I've got to be dead honest that I love this movie. Awesome. So fucking good. So uh, yeah, it's my first time watching Hunchback. Uh, this may be the first real Hunchback I've ever watched. He's just always oh, wow. a character in something that I watch. So. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I had never seen this version either. Uh, I was surprised at the running length. Because uh, I feel like, especially black and white films for this era were, were way shorter. Um, so it's a longer running length. And that it, it's entertaining the whole movie. I, I knew it was going to be daunting when I picked a movie. From 1939, and the the running time was what it was. I knew that when people put it in to watch it for the podcast, there was going to be a groan of like, I don't think you're making me watch this. It wasn't even that, that just knowing the time period and like normal, normal films from this time period were an hour or less. Um, and also it's weird, but, uh, watching this, I was like, Disney really took straight up from this version to even a lot of the likeness. I agree. I agree that. Disney, this is certainly where they took their character design for Quasimodo for their anime. So sadly, I've seen the Disney Hunchback quite a few times this first time watch for this one, but I really enjoyed it. Remind me, the actor playing Quasimodo? Charles, Charles Lawton. Lawton. Charles Lawton, man. One but, of the greatest ever. Yeah, man. Kills it. Husband yes. of the Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, uh, can, I, can I also say, too, uh, where they, they take his shirt off to, to do the, the Cat nine tails or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh for the time period again, I'm like, I was surprised that they showed it mm-hmm. and that it was actually pretty good special effects. Yep. Well, and his makeup on his face, like Carrie was watching part of it with me. She was like, I can't look at him. Like he's, the makeup is so well done that he is uh, hard to look at. Looks like Jason Voorhees' his father. Yes. Um, I honestly don't even know how many times I've seen this. This is This was a staple growing up of, yep. of just the classic cycles that me and my dad watched together. Um, it is, I think, um, a very effective film and I think that it is completely carried by Lawton and his performance in it, even though he's not necessarily on the screen through the whole film. And there's much, you know, there's, there's a lot of other, 
uh, characters and things going on, but that he catapults this thing into something special. Um, and there's some insights into the production and, and when it was made and other things that I'll mention later on. But uh, just by and large, my history with it, I, I've seen it numerous times. Uh, full disclosure, I like the Cheney one better. This film is a better film, though. Um, I just have a more special bond with the, the Cheney fair. silent film because I saw it first and I was fascinated with all the climbing that they did up the building in the silent film that really isn't in this. Um, but I'm speaking from more of a youthful standpoint there. But this is a better film. Um, and I think that they really touch on um, just kind of basic elements of humanity um, that are very effective in this. And the other interesting thing that I want to kind of throw out up front and see what you guys think is that I've always, I mean, since I was a little kid, been fascinated on if this really belonged alongside what it was always lumped in with. <clears throat> because you never see the hunchback being the monster. Right. It's just being appalled at the appearance and then feeling bad for once you see the effects of, of people in the film being appalled as a viewer, you kind of have this experience of being like, ah, shame on me. Like, you know, and, right. and so it's never really had the same elements of horror and monster movies. And I'm sorry if I'm stealing any thunder here. But no, I no, I will comment along with that. I, I, I was going to, I think that uh, goes a lot with the, again, the time period where if you think about it, basically just someone having a deformity made right. them like freaks and mm -hmm. Frankenstein, which of course was Frankenstein's monster. Uh, just basically someone being disfigured, they were automatically like villainous or a monster. Um, even though really, re it, when you get down to the core of it, it's usually the the normal people or, you know, uh, in this case it was like, uh, I can't think of the what the character, was he like uh, one of the executioner, but... Frollo? Yeah, Frodo. So... Uh, I mean, so essentially like a character that everyone looked up into the town, like they were actually the, the villain and not the... I feel that this is horror adjacent, and I don't even know for certain if it belongs there. Right. Uh, I think the reason why it is thought of, because when I brought this up, I don't think anybody even blinked it. No. Me saying do it for a horror podcast. And that's partly because, number one, the name Lon Chaney is synonymous and with his silent version of it that automatically lumps the hunchback in with a lot of of horror icons secondly this movie the 39 version that we're talking about here this was actually released as an easter movie and audiences and critics were not pleased with that aspect because they felt this was more of a horror movie so again, that's also the time period and uh, views at the time, I think, that also cast this in a light of being a horror. And it's simply because He's Quasimodo monstrous. Is, is monstrous. It, it just in appearance. Right. That's the only, that's well, the only horror, quote-unquote, <clears throat> horror element that exists within this. But it was enough that it's forever been synonymous with Certainly. horror. Well, and in fairness, too, this frequently got thrown in with the kitchen sink in other films. I mean, like uh, House of Dracula, you've got the assistant. You had, in, a, in some form, uh, Eeyore. And, uh, you've had other 
scenarios, but they're never the thing that's coming at you and scaring you. So I thought it was at least uh, important to mention up front because that's always something I kind of yeah. thought was weird even from a young yeah. age. It's like, oh, we're kind of lumping in mm-hmm. somebody that's not really a monster wanting to do you harm. Yep. But you're right. It is the shock value mm-hmm. um, for viewers, especially at the time. That was ghastly to go in and see Lawton's Well, and and, and they were very particular to not show Lawton's makeup in any of the advertising. Yeah. So that was also, I mean, imagine at that time how shocking that would be to see that image when you go into a movie. Um, do we want to hit a quick synopsis sure. at this point? Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the story, uh, the story is about a hunchbacked, disfigured bell ringer that was left on the steps of the cathedral as an infant that has been raised uh, in Notre Dame. Uh, the story, the crux of this particular story is that there is a gypsy woman who is performing in the streets, uh, more or less is accused of witchcraft. Uh, she seeks sanctuary within the cathedral. Um, and this is under is it Louis the Eleventh in France. You know, I don't remember which one. So Frollo, who is like the priest, basically isn't in, becomes infatuated with her and falls in love with her, which of course does not jive with his uh, vows that he has taken, and. Be, though he loves her, resents her for causing his sin. Um, and basically it puts Quasimodo at odds with his adopted father. Um, and any, is there any, I don't know, any anything else you would add to that? I think that's the basic plot device we're looking yeah. at here. Yeah. Okay. So, unless, if, unless anybody wants to add anything to that... Um, I think that's a good setup. Okay. I when you watch this movie, you immediately see what an extravagant production that this movie was. Oh yeah. Which it's important to point out is RKO. RKO was like Val Luton movies, no money. They threw everything they had at this film because their whole purpose was we want to outdo the silent version. And so this, you can go back and look through films made by RKO in that era. They are cheap. This is this is everything for them. I mean, it worked out well. Yeah. We're here talking this many years later about it. It's always been celebrated. But at the time, it was a big deal. It was nominated for two Oscars. Everything in on it. Yeah. I, I also wanted to touch on, too, as like a side note, that a couple weeks ago, I'm seeking this movie out everywhere and because it's Warner and you know, things are leading to having to get on the Warner side and mm-hmm. Disney side. And so I had issues finding this film and I just had to order it from, uh, I just ordered the, from Warner brothers, the Blu-ray. So I'm seeking this out. And then as my movies in transit, you know, Notre Dame is burning down in, in real life. That yeah, was, I was a strange, trying to remind myself to make sure we mentioned that today. Yeah. That's a strange coincidence that, because we rec- we recorded last, what, a month ago. And I picked it then, and then now, before, at leading up to us recording this movie after I picked it, uh, Notre Dame burned. So, so me watching this film for the first time was days after Notre Dame had burnt to the ground. So, kind of a weird, uh, weird coincidence. And then I definitely watching the film, 
and a lot of the scenery and and all the all the scenes with the cathedral like it definitely my mind was on the they said that the recent set time. designers painstakingly rebuilt the facade of Notre Dame like when like that's crazy to me and you can tell the efforts that were put in as you watch this film you know we're talking about a wonder of the modern world yeah <laughs> you know and I mean? being completely more or less recreated yeah. for a film uh i i know i noted that the scene at the border with the gypsies trying to come in how how it shows you how little things have changed not only yeah. since this movie was made in 39 but since this book was written by Victor Hugo mm-hmm. like it just and it's funny how those themes never change um of course a big point of this movie is Charles Lawton and his performance and I watched some extras on this uh he was very involved in the makeup process uh he rejected Many makeup designs until they found one that he accepted and okayed. Uh, Lawton even wore earplugs so that he would be deaf yep. on wow. the set. I didn't know that. Crazy. Like, and of course, we did uh, Island of Lost Souls where he played Dr. Moreau. So good. And while we, when we watched that, all we sat and we gushed over how great he was in that. And it's no different for this film either. Yeah. And no for any of those all. interested in non-horror films, there's a whole bunch more. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, he's, yeah. He's he was genius. He also directed genius. Night of the Hunter, which we haven't covered yet. No. A film that I love. Uh, I just want to talk about uh, what, I, what I really appreciate about the story, too, in the film, is that it captured... Uh, it really did a good job of capturing uh, France at the time and just Europe at the time. I mean, you've got the printing press coming out and and even right there uh, this shows that throughout all of history you've had people who have been progressive on issues and conservative on issues mm-hmm. the printing press is coming out which would play a plot device later in the film and they're arguing already about why this is a great thing or why this is a terrible mm-hmm. thing and i think that's an important thing to hit because hollywood was dealing with the same struggles at the time mm-hmm. about like what steps we're taking as far as what we're allowing in film and what we're not allowing in film and i mean it's just Universal. We still live with those struggles today. You get racism in the the people of France or the, of Paris not wanting uh, the gypsies coming in. You've got a lot of classism in this movie. I think it hits on a lot of social topics that were important for the era they're portraying, the era in which it was filmed, and the era in which we still live. So I think that's why this movie holds up so well, yeah. is that it's timeless. And it's interesting, too, because you can go right down to the center core of it in the way that we view somebody with a deformity yeah. and our inefficiencies to have any kind of sympathy for them and what your neighbor goes through and how that branches out and all these other things you're talking about. And in a lot of ways, the hunchback's deformities really represent any kind of, any kind of adversity that is in front of us and how some people want to band together to help and others want to shove each other out of the way. And so it's it's a very layered movie without it ever trying to be, just yeah. because the story is so classic. Yeah. One part makes me wince, and that's when Quasimodo dumps the hot molten yeah. like metal, and it goes down and sprays out of the spouts, the, <laughs> the gargoyles, gargoyles down onto the guys trying to break into the cathedral. That makes me wince just to think of the idea of getting showered with that molten metal like that. 
And I wondered why they just kept metal cooking in Notre Dame <laughs> Cathedral all the time. <laughs> For an event such as this, perhaps. I There are, in closing for me, if everybody's good with that, um, I out of all of the versions that I have seen, and I like many of the versions that I have seen, to me, this is the best version that's ever been put to film for yeah. me. I would have no argument with that. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of them, so I don't have a lot to compare. I will say the 90s version, Ballsy, renaming him Rudy, and having him get the touchdown. Ballsy. He's blew my mind. Oh, um, man. I, I want to point out this, how wonderful the scene is when Esmeralda, when Esmeralda has been brought out for her punishment. And we have the music playing, and Quasimodo swings down and grabs her in his oh. moment of triumph. Did that make you think we're of the Goonies? coming up on? I mean, we're coming up on a century. We're not that far away. Yeah, and I'm still ready to jump out of my chair, pumped. Oh, it's man. done so damn yeah. well. When he climbs and like swings his way over to the rope, and then swings and grabs her, swings back, and of course, everybody with me now. Sanctuary. Yes. Which is important to the plot. For listeners, we should point out he is grabbing her to bring her up because she is to be safe within the church. Yep. So that's an old thing. So that's why those of you who attend church, you usually call your worship space the sanctuary if you're if you're part of a liturgical tradition. Um, so you usually call that portion of your church the sanctuary. And if you've ever wondered why it's called the sanctuary, is because in this day and age, if you were someone who was on trial and you felt like it was unjust. You could make your way to the church and get into where the altar is, not just where the pews are. That's not where the true sanctuary is. Where the altar is, is the sanctuary. And if you held on to what they called the horns of the altar, you were safe from the law. Like, you could wait out there <laughs> until they're like, oh, you know what? Turns out you didn't murder that person. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, you, as long as you were in that space, you had literally Is that like the knife sanctuary. test? <laughs> like, she picked the, the wrong knife, so guilty. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yes. that's, uh, that's a bummer to watch. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, the guy, this makes perfect sense. Let's <laughs> yeah. see what she picks. I actually thought him. he was coming in to save her, and he's like, oh, no, she's guilty. Yeah. but So that's where the idea of sanctuary. Yeah. So that's why even your churches to this day use that word sanctuary. And like I said earlier, for 1939, the makeup effects are unbelievably good. Yes. Unbelievably good. So with her being brought into sanctuary, it creates the divide and if that should be allowed or not, mm -hmm. which is why you have Quasimodo defending the structure, because you have different angles. Some are saying, let's have the peasants break it down uh, to help or to hurt, and and then you got other people with uh, saying basically legislation needs to change and rules. Yeah. This shouldn't happen, and so you have the showdown with him defending it. Um, and then you also, this is where we return to the power of the printing press, which I mean, pamphlets. Uh, you know, a major role in history. I don't just say that because I'm Lutheran, but like, <laughs> I mean, this was the thing. Like, so they, they made these pamphlets to raise awareness of what was happening there so that the legislation wouldn't change so that it would be upheld. And it's the same power of the printing press that caused the Protestant reformation. You know, if, if there was no printing press, the works of Martin Luther wouldn't have gotten out. I'm getting off on a tangent, but like, I love that they included that in this mm -hmm. film. Like, that's the importance. <clears throat> There's the not a bad performance in this movie either. No, it's a great catch. You also have uh, George Zuko, who was in a number of Universal films. Edmund O'Brien in his first role. 
He made a ton of great movies. There's a lot of good people in this. Grandpa Danny Zuko, who was in Greece. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Maureen O'Hara was in this because of lobbying from Lawton and his wife, Lanchester. She was brought over from the stage in the UK. She went on to have a long career. I don't know if any of you have seen Only the Lonely with John Candy. Oh, yeah. yep. She's the mother. Okay. She was around for a long time. Yeah, on, yeah. On she screen. in some like John Wayne films. and she's, Yeah. She was in um, The Quiet Man, I think. Yeah. yeah. A ton of stuff. Yep. But um, Lawton was mainly responsible it's, it's for her jump start in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, last thing, uh, on top of what Vinny said about the molten <laughs> metal being thrown through the spouts. I love that Quasimodo is just throwing shit and killing people. Oh, yeah. So. Throwing giant wooden beams and stones. <laughs> all, just smashing. There's one scene where it falls down on a dude and it's clearly a dummy. When it hits him, like, it's man, a dummy for not moving. it's good. Very, uh, very similar to the Disney version. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, it's made me want to watch the Disney version because as Carrie sat and watched it with me, she was like, this is almost identical to the Disney. Oh, you you'd be surprised with a Disney movie as well, not to go off on a tangent, but with the Disney animated version because there's a lot of uh, repressed sexuality themes with this. Heyo, with this story, to see it kind of pulled off and put into animations, odd. Yeah, yeah. Again, like even the the likeness of most of the the central characters are used in the Disney film. Uh, I think it was TMC maybe at one time did a t- television version around the time that uh, the animated Disney was done. And oh, that's wow. a good one, too, to watch. It's got uh, Salma Hayek as Esmeralda. Ooh. It's got Robert Harris as Frollo. And Salma Hayek as the Hunchback, also. Cool <laughs> role. And, <laughs> and Mandy Patankin as Quasimodo. Naturally. Yeah, so anyway. Cool. I digress. A uh, few things I'd like to mention before we move on from this. Uh, my favorite scene in the entire movie is after he is being run through the ringer out publicly. And Maureen O'Hara, Esmeralda, feels sympathy and goes up and takes him water. She gave me water. Exactly. And it's the fact that this man has just been humiliated in front of everyone. Had physically abused and he can barely walk. He's been had the hell beat out of him so bad he, he's walking drunk. He gets in the church, and that's all he cares about, that somebody was nice to him. Somebody showed him compassion. And I think that's his best moment of acting in it, because you just, you instantly just feel it. I mean, it's so good. And then a couple of things off the screen I want to mention related to the war that I think are really neat to add with this movie when you're watching it. One, this was the first film to play at Cannes Film Festival, and the only film. They played this, and then Hitler started invading Poland. They canceled the rest of the wow. festival to kind of put it in context mm. with with when it was. And then also, when he is ringing the bells for her, when he's up there going nuts on him, Europe had just started the war in mm. terms of them getting involved, Britain getting involved. Yeah. And he was ringing the bells out of acknowledging it because he and both the director were kind of riddled with guilt that all these young kids were getting ready to go off to die and we're making a movie today. And so it was kind of like this sense of pride oh. with ringing the bells. Lawton it's, also, it's yeah. Lawton also during that time right there, uh, on set in full costume recited in full the Gettysburg address for the cast and crew. And they said it changed the mood for the rest of the day of filming. Yeah. Wow. He was a remarkable performer. 
Yeah. Also ahead of its time is when the Knights came in to the printing press and they were like, fake news, shut it down. <laughs> you are the enemy of the people. Uh, help me out. Last thing here. Um, Quasimodo has saved the day. Esmeralda is going off to be with the man that she loves. She looks back, sees him. Quasimodo sits next to a gargoyle and he says something like, Why was I not made of stone like thee? Yeah. Yep. Damn. I I can't recommend this movie enough. Yeah. Cannot recommend it enough. So good. So good. So, okay. Would you, would you say it's better than Deadly Friend? <laughs> <laughs> by, a, by a nose. By a nose. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> Ellen. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. So we're out of third, heading home. And uh, listeners, uh, I've just got to be real honest with you. We, some, we, we're we pretty loosey-goosey with spoilers, right? Because a lot of the stuff's older that we talk about. I can't stress to you enough that if you plan on watching the next film we're about to discuss, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, I cannot stress enough that if you have not seen it and you plan to see it and you don't like having things spoiled for you, Turn off the podcast now. Yep. Dead on. Uh, <clears throat> we've, we've thought about including this in other roundtable discussions, of which I won't say because that will give it away, uh, the, the big twist in this. But this film has a major twist that is worth experiencing uh, without having it spoiled for you. So We're maybe, getting ready to. <laughs> yeah, maybe you like spoilers. I'm not going to judge you for that, but I, I don't understand people that like spoilers. Um, so please, if you have not seen Autopsy Jane Doe and you intend to, because I think we can all say this is a great film. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think three out of four of us could say this yes. is a great film. I'm just kidding. So, uh, this is a great film. Just know that it comes recommended by all four of us. Yeah. Uh, you should watch it. If so, turn the podcast off now. If you've seen the film, if you don't care about spoilers, please. Enjoy where we're going. And after you've watched it, come back. <clears throat> Hotty toddy. So, spoiler alert. Full bush. <laughs> the Autopsy of Jane Doe 2016 uh, starring Brian Cox and Emilio Little Emil Hirsch. Uh, writer Ian Goldberg and Richard Naney directed by Andre... Over, 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 dead. Okay. Sure. <laughs> over dog. Who uh, also directed Troll Hunter? If you oh, seen that, I love Troll Hunter. Uh, experience with this film, first impressions. I have seen it once before. I can't remember who recommended it to me. It was either uh, Mr. Rick Frey, one of my jujitsu instructors, or it was our friend Kyle Putra. Um. Anyways, I don't know who recommended it, but watched it and loved it the first time and uh, really enjoyed revisiting it this time. I had not seen this before. <clears throat> it turned out to be not what I was expecting going in, and that's not in a bad way. Well, that's kind of the whole gist, Yes. Right? First time watch, 100% agree with Vinny. I thought this was going to be a totally different movie yeah. than what it really was. Yep. Uh, this was, I had watched it once before and have been sitting on wanting to cover it for the podcast for a while. 
uh, including one particular roundtable. I kept getting ready to say it and then going, uh, but if the other guys haven't seen it yet, then I've just ruined the movie even by suggesting it instantly. Uh, so I always avoided it. So I'm glad for us to be covering it. Would now. that have been our witch roundtable? Uh, maybe. But uh, oh, we already we all right, said yeah. spoiler. That's right. You're right. Yeah, the warning just punched me out. in the face. There was a death <laughs> look right there. Uh, but no, it's fine. If you're if you're listening still, you had your chance. Uh, so we want to dig into the basic setup for the movie. Uh, we open the film with a crime scene: the corpse of an unidentified woman uh, found around a bloody multiple homicide. Um, we see no signs of forced entry, and a deputy suggests that the victims were trying to escape. We then jump. Uh, over to a father and son who are coroners together, um, played by our main two stars you mentioned, Brian Cox and Emily Hirsch. Um, <clears throat> Austin, Father Tommy. And it's set in a small town. And as the son is getting ready to leave on his date with the girlfriend that has stopped by, a, they bring a corpse down. Um, and the son decides to stay with him. We jump into... Uh, our autopsy, like they do over and over again every day. Would you say it's an autopsy of a Jane Doe? Yes. Uh, we do not. I'm glad. Is that where they got out. the name from? Um, <laughs> so we jump into the usual with an autopsy, and some very bizarre things begin to happen immediately. How far do we want to go with this? I was going to say, you mentioned the crime scene that the body came from. Very weird in the yeah. fact that it's this multiple homicide, but this body is apparently untouched, mm-hmm. unscathed, has no business being on the scene. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a good start. Yeah, and so we, we go through the autopsy, and we have um, things that really start to confuse them. We have uh, odd things starting to happen around their office. Um, with her, there are no visible signs of trauma, yet her wrist and ankle bones have been shattered. Um, her tongue has been cut out. One of her teeth is missing, one of the molars. Uh, her lungs are blackened, as though she suffered third-degree burns. But again, there's no signs of any kind of trauma on the outside of the body. Um, and we have internal organs revealing numerous cuts and scarring. So again, as you can imagine, coroners doing an autopsy. That's kind of a what-the-hell moment. We've got a virtually untouched woman laying on the slab, and the inside of her is just devastated. Um, And so they find a paralyzing agent in her stomach um, that would indicate that the death has just occurred. The cloudiness in the eyes suggests that she's been dead for several days. And at this point, we don't know what in the hell we're looking at. Um, then we queue up mysterious events within the area starting to occur. Um, the radio spontaneously comes on and starts playing, open up your heart and let the sun shine in as they're opening up her chest. Um, we've got, uh, potentially people we're seeing in the hallway and it just continues to get weirder and weirder. Yeah. Uh, thoughts at this point, anything we're missing? I just want to say that I noted when I sat down to watch this movie, the runtime, it's an 86 minute runtime. And I thought, Oh my God, like after watching this the first time, there's so much going on in this movie. You could swear it's a two hour movie yeah, in a good way, mm-hmm. not in a bad way. Now that mm-hmm. it drags, it feels but, longer. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, it feels longer because it's so to the point, so much happening 
you're like, oh, yeah, that's probably a longer movie as it takes to flesh out that story and develop the storyline and character development. No, it's 86 minutes of pure punch you in the mouth. Yeah. Like it's, they're in a minute wasted in this. <clears throat> not we're a waste setting up the characters, then we're explaining and setting up the story and then finishing it. Yeah. It's just bam, 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 bam. So really the turning point in the film is they find the missing tooth uh, in her stomach. It is wrapped inside a piece of cloth, which has Roman numerals, letters, and an odd diagram. And then we peel back the skin. The inside of her skin has the same thing on it. At that point, the lights explode and a hell breaks loose. It sharp, sharp right turn at this point. Yeah. Slow heavy metal music. Doom, 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 and that is some terrifying doom, shit because they leave the viewer sitting in the dark for a, a pretty substantial length of time. Oh, yeah. Just having to listen. We've got the slabs opened up, bodies missing. I mean, it is just the, sheer the, chaos. The one corpse that, that has a bell on it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't mention that earlier. They, they point out the girl that's visiting, the younger guy, his girlfriend, and she's wanting to see a body. They yeah. explain that on they've got the bell tied on the toe so that you can hear if the corpse moves. Yeah, old tradition. Uh, people would be like in a deep coma or something like that, and they'd think they were dead. Tie a bell to them, and, and uh, they you'd hear them moving. And you're like, oh, they're not dead. You do that to me every time we sleep over. I do, because I'm worried about you. And Waking up. <clears throat> um, did you mention that her lungs were burned on the inside? Did yeah. Where well. are you at? You don't pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> are you here right now? I I just feel a little possessed when I, when I talk about this. Movie. <laughs> yeah. Captivated. Uh, other thoughts. Th- that moment when yeah, from the rookies, from the guys you just yeah, that moment, like because like I say, you're watching it, and and I almost feel like it's we're we're getting ready to watch a true crime in a way, I guess the name and just the first, however long of the movie feels that way. And then all of a sudden they just slap that motherfucker into a different gear. Yeah. When, when and you're like, Oh, eyes are missing. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, wait a minute. We're, we're going to, we're going a paranormal direction now. Yeah. Like it's surprising as shit in a very good way. Um, and then once that happened and I got over the initial shock of it, I was like, I'm ready to buckle in and go yeah. for the rest of the ride on this they got this you, thing, the you know? There. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wasn't, as, if I'm being honest, I wasn't expecting to get scared from this movie. It's scary. Uh, it's probably one of the, 2016, it's probably one of the scariest movies of the last, like, five years. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. I agree 100% with Vinny by the name and the poster and what I had heard about it. I thought it's like some CSI shit where we're going to figure out what happened to Jane Doe. I hadn't heard shit about this. Yeah, I, the, where it went, I had no idea. Well, I just want to say my first little personal tidbit I've got jotted down. One of the scariest five films of the last five years. Uh, like, It's just, if not the scariest, this and Last Shift are two of the last ones I can remember. Just kind of coming in and whipping my ass. And this did too. Oh, yeah. Um, so after the lights hit, we we finally have father and son deciding they're going to flee. That doesn't work out too well. We've got a tree that's fallen down on the exit, the backup exit they're trying to do. Elevator's not working, etc. And then they decide that, without logic or not, that the reason this is happening is this corpse does not want them to understand the truth about her death. And they go back in there determined to figure out 
what in the hell is going on with this body? Um, and our big reveal at this point is kind of back-to-back. -back. Uh, tests determined that Jane Doe's brain tissue cells remain active, proving that she is somehow still alive. Um, which I, I can't stress enough that with, with this corpse just laying there the whole time, there's something just very, very scary about it. It's hard to really put into words, but you're learning about all these things about this inanimate object that's just laying there potentially evil and it, it just it works um but they also further examine the cloth uh and determine that the markings refer to leviticus with 2027 which condemns witches in the year 1693 which is the date of the salem witch trials um, tommy and austin reasoned that in their attempt to punish a witch the salem authorities instead transformed an innocent woman into a witch who now seeks revenge and so, in theory, we have the body of her continuing to travel around until somebody gets it right and just kills, 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 kills in their presence. Um, and that's your big reveal. And I will say that if you decided to go ahead with this without having seen the movie yet, it's still scary. The second viewing still made me uncomfortable, and I knew everything that was going to happen. Um, and say like how it almost uh not not the story but just like the the slab the dead body it kind of puts me to mind a little bit of uh, one dark night where that mm -hmm. that one body's controlling all these mm -hmm. dead corpses and, sure. and then you get things that may or may not be really happening and you get the corpse that's like right up on him from the elevator that they throw an axe in and then it's really his girlfriend coming back to yeah. check on him and I don't know like it, it's it's definitely not always a movie that I was expecting when I went into it. And I don't know. I feel like I even watched it with some of the lights on and it was already storming outside, but it was very effective. There aren't many movies that scare me anymore. This scared me. Oh yeah. And then you find out that it was all controlled by her. Like at the end when <clears throat> they come in and find the scene, we'll get into that when they find the scene, but you find out there was no storm, right? Mm -hmm. Like this was all controlled by the witch's brain control. And freaking them out like it's it's pretty remarkable. I, Trapped I, down in the basement with it. I do have to think <laughs> about the young actress that plays Jane Doe though of uh, telling like Grandma, I'm in a movie, <laughs> and then the whole movie she's just like bush up. Yeah. But you know what? Can you imagine getting paid to play a corpse in a movie? <laughs> like like well, you're gonna have to be naked and lay on a table a lot. Uh, but we're gonna pay you to just lay there and just be naked. Bet, where do I sign up? Here's my routing number. <laughs> yeah. Um, do we want to get into the end? Sure. All right. So, <clears throat> as uh, Toddy pointed out, that they think that one of the corpses is pursuing them, and they go to kill it, and it turns out it's not one of the corpses. It's his girlfriend who's come back to check on him because they're still on for a date, right? They were supposed to be on for a date. He sticks around to help his dad. She comes back. And that's what happens to her. Um, uh, the father sacrifices himself for his son and takes on the witch's wounds, uh, you know, in this way of like trying to appease her and trying to end this curse. Uh, doesn't help. Doesn't it's help. remarkable to watch, though, as the wounds on the corpse heal. Yeah. As he's putting being put through agony all to try and save his son. Yeah. It's very intense. Yeah. And remind me, ultimately, again, how does the sun die? 
Uh, he is spooked up at the top of the staircase and goes flying off. Falls over. That's right. Which is brutal, too. And then the cops arrive. And again, we have another weird crime scene with this untouched body. When Brian Cox, when his wrists and his ankles break. Snap. Oh, that made me cringe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the cops come. It's a weird crime scene. It doesn't make sense, just like the one that they found the body at. And so the main cop is just like, you know what? Take this to the morgue in the next county over. Get it out of my county. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah. Like, he doesn't suspect that the corpse has anything to do with it. He just doesn't like that it's been at two crime scenes that are unexplainable. Get it out of my county. We get it in the ambulance. And what song comes on? In the ambulance. Let the sun shine in. Yep. And the toe wiggles. Credits. It's a good movie. Glad everyone liked it. I've been excited to cover this one. Oh, yeah. Me too. Highly recommend it. It's been on my list too. So I'm glad you brought it up. Because it's, uh, it's one of the best horror films of the last 10 years. Easily. Yeah. Agreed. I'd agree with Easily. That. Any final thoughts about Autopsy of Jane Doe? Just watch, watch it, it, whether you're yeah. casual or die. I was going to say, I would say this is a must-watch. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think uh, at, when I watched it, I was like, why did I wait so long to watch it? Like, that was the biggest thing. I had never even heard of it, to be perfectly honest with you. There must not have been a big marketing campaign for it or anything like that. There wasn't. Yeah. I think it played festivals and kind of ended up on Blu-ray okay. a few months later. Yeah. I found this after, I mean, I'm telling you, within a month of watching it, I found it on Blu-ray at a pawn shop for two bucks. And I thought, what a steal. Oh, yeah. And, which begs the question, what person bought that? <laughs> Who bought this blindly? And was like, nah, yeah. this sucks, I'm selling it. <laughs> it's dumb. Too sci-fi. <laughs> They're like, I thought this was that movie where the guys do bad things to the woman's corpse. <laughs> I don't remember what that one's called. You know, Chris. <laughs> All right. Well, wrapping it up for the Midwest Monsters podcast and another edition of the Monster Mash. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Hot Toddy. Stay scary. Beanie. Beanie. <laughs>